0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part eight in the series, More of the Holy Spirit. If the beginning of discipleship is to be with Jesus, and the beginning of operating in the power of the Holy Spirit is intimacy with God, then it makes sense to spend our last teaching in this series talking about one of the primary outlets we have to connect with God and steward intimacy with Him, worship. Years ago, a friend of mine got into the Holy Spirit, which I realize is a weird thing to say, but I don't know how else to describe it. He got into the Holy Spirit. He had been before this, like myself, an ordinary kind of fellow who wanted sincerely to follow Jesus, big part of his life. No charismatic background that I knew of, no kooky tendencies that I knew of. But then one day, I met up with him after not seeing him for a while, and his discipleship was quite different. It seemed to, and I know this sounds like a cliche, but it seemed to have come alive. Um, I had no doubts as to the sincerity of his discipleship before this, but now he seemed uniquely caught up in Jesus as an active and dynamic person in his life, even the simple things of his life. And it was through, he said, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't seem to me phony. It didn't seem culty or anything like that. Same dude. He just had a new outlook on things, and it was made manifest in the things that he did and said. And otherwise, he was the same down-to-earth fellow. This dude who was before, like me, following Jesus by all the things that a disciple of Jesus should do, reading his Bible, praying, going to church, all that. But now he was also hearing God's voice regularly and talking about it as it was an innate, intrinsic, normal part of his discipleship. He was prophesying and seeing miraculous hearings and expecting those things in the normal, everyday flow of his discipleship. And as I got to know this new, Holy Spirit-empowered version of my old friend, I noticed something else different about him as well that really stood out to me. He and I were standing together, talking at an event one evening, when nearby a worship band began to play. My friend politely excuses himself from the conversation he and I were having. He moved over to the audience that was standing nearby that were all ready to worship. And almost instantly, he began to sing and dance. He lifted up his hands and he started to sing out with the others, caught up in worship at a moment's notice. And I thought, huh, this is also new. The more I thought about it, The more it occurred to me that these things seem to, more often than not, exist in the same place. The things of the Holy Spirit and wild abandon in worship. Now I know worship is a loaded word, but hang on, we'll get there in just a little bit. For now, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Tonight, we are concluding our series all about the Holy Spirit. So, we've unpacked a biblical theology of who the Spirit is, His power, and His presence. We talked about God's Spirit as God's empowering presence. We've talked about learning to hear God's voice in the pragmatic sense. We've talked about the things that the Spirit does, all the different kinds of things that the Spirit does, and how we talked about prophecy. We even talked about the even weirder sounding stuff like speaking in tongues and miraculous healings. If you missed any of that, do me a favor, go back and listen to the pod- podcast. It's all there. Except for the first teaching, which wasn't recorded due to technical difficulties, to which I say, hey, come to church. You won't miss stuff. <laughs> Apologies to our beloved Van City Kids volunteers who were serving that evening. But all of it is important. Uh, this has been, as I've said many times along the way, a series that has been years in the making for Van City. It's something myself and the other men and women who lead this church have been praying will shape our church in the months and years to come. And since all of it is about our relationship with God's Spirit, tonight I want to end the series by talking about one of the primary outlets that we have to connect with God's Spirit. Because honestly, we could spend many months in this series without exhausting the relevant content. Um, but what we're really after are not like a, an exhaustive uh, theology of the Holy Spirit per se, but more like foundational pieces for the culture of Van City Church. What does it mean to show up here on Sunday? And why? What does it mean to belong to Van City family, the Van City family proper? What does it mean to be in a community? What are the expectations? How does our family work? What do we expect here on a Sunday evening? And our hope and prayer is that just as we maintain our, our other foundational pieces, our commitment to practice the way of Jesus uh, in submission to the authority of the scriptures, we are simultaneously becoming a family and a people empowered by the presence of God's Spirit to see and demonstrate the full range of, of the things that the Spirit does in the everyday flow of our lives, in our communities, and especially, I would argue, here on a Sunday evening. Now, we already talk constantly about the three goals of apprenticeship to Jesus. To be with Jesus is number one, so that over time we can become like Jesus in order to eventually do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And there's a reason that be with Jesus comes first in that formula, Really, all throughout the Bible, God endeavors to create a unique space in which he can experience intimacy and connectedness with humanity. And in every picture of God's pursuit of that thing and God's realization of that thing, that place is a unique space of worship. It begins, as you know, I'm sure, in a garden, the first temple, if you will. But the whole Bible, really, begins and ends with a picture of God with his people. If you know the opening sequence, like I said, you got Genesis, Adam and Eve, garden, all that. We read in it that God would, and I quote, walk in the garden in the cool of day. And we, and we don't know exactly what that means, to be honest, but whatever it means in the specific sense, Everyone agrees that the author of Genesis means to depict a world in which there is no barrier between God and humans. God is with his people. And then much, much later, at the conclusion of the Bible story, the climax of the Revelation, we read this amazing, beautiful glimpse into a world made new, and we read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with Them and be their God. The Bible begins and ends depicting God with his people in loving intimacy. And in all of those pictures, God is with them and there is worship. Earlier in the series, we talked about the way that you can trace this motif across several major landmarks in the Bible story, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, the exile, Jesus of Nazareth, the spirit, the church, that's us, and then the human body. There's God's spirit and presence and worship on the mountain. It's like terrifying with thunder and lightning and all that. It's in the tabernacle in a special place that only some people can get to. And then it's in the temple. And then it leaves Israel in the exile, but returns to them in Jesus of Nazareth, who was also called Emmanuel, God with us. And it came in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost on Jesus' earliest followers. And then it lives on in the ongoing movement of Jesus and has eventually come to indwell in the very bodies of the people who follow him. And there is a direct and profound connectedness between this withness of God's Spirit and with worship of all things. Jesus actually pointed toward a new era of spirit-filled worship in a conversation he has in John's gospel with the Samaritan woman at the well, if you know the story. Look down at John chapter 4, and let's read beginning with verse 19. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem.' For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the Holy Spirit and in truth. Interesting. Now, stay with me for just a second. Turn a few books to the right in your Bibles to a letter called Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians, which is a letter written to a church by a master, apprentice of Jesus called Paul, he picks up on this idea of Jesus um, talking about worshiping in the Spirit, and he writes this in Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 17. It says, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away from peace to those who were near, or far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one, what? By his Spirit. Now, earlier in the Bible story, the garden was a place of God's presence and a unique place for worship. Things went awry, if you know the story. But God continued to work with wayward humanity to establish, his, to establish unique places for connection and for worship between him and his people. So the mountain, the tabernacle, the temple. But these places were marked by restricted access and specific limitations. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies or only one of them and only once a year and so on with all kinds of rules and rituals and specific parameters around which they had to operate. But eventually, just as Jesus said, An incredible reality would interrupt this fragmented rhythm of restriction and limitations. One day, Jesus said, we will worship in the spirit and in truth. And later, Paul would confirm, indeed, that day has arrived. The new place of worship is here. And it's not a tabernacle. It's not a temple. But it is our very bodies, which are now home to God's spirit. So we worship in the spirit And in truth, you are now the venue of spirit-filled worship and intimacy with God. But worship, for many of us, is a complicated idea to say the least. Why do we worship? Why is it the thing to which we dedicate much, if not most of our time here on Sunday evenings? It's a question worth asking for a number of reasons, really. We could go on and on. One of them being, why worship when God doesn't need it? You ever think about that? Like, it's a question that I think of all the time. He doesn't forget who he is. He doesn't forget what he's like. He's not like Tinkerbell or Pennywise. You know, he doesn't uh, draw his power from what other people believe about him. God doesn't actually need reminding of any of the things that we say and sing about him during worship. God doesn't need reminding, but we do. So is worship for us specifically? Well, no. God is not an abstract idea, and He's not an intangible force. God is a personal and relational being. In other words, He's a person, not a human, but a person. And it's hard for us to conceive of an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, all the omnis, being who also craves relational intimacy, because craving intimacy seems so human. But where do you think we got it from? The innate human longing for connection and relationship originates in and reflects the personhood of God himself. We're that way because God is that way. And in that sense, worship is much easier to understand by allowing ourselves to file it in very human-sounding categories. We all process and experience love and affection in different ways, a lot of them the same, a lot of overlap, but different ways. One of my biggest ways, personally, is through what some call uh, words of affirmation. So I know already, intellectually anyway, that my wife, Abby, thinks nice things about me. She's told me and shown me many times over the last 15 years. Yet, even so, to this day, if she, of her own volition, says something kind or loving to me, I feel... Deeply loved and known, I love her in return, and our sense of intimacy and connectedness, which can absolutely oscillate, is nurtured and reinforced. And we feel closer, and we are closer. What I know intellectually becomes something I experience in a meaningful and effective way. And, listen to this, I am shaped and changed as a result over time by that exchange. Now, I realize we're wading into the deep waters right away this evening. Stay with me on this. We've spent the first few teachings in this series making a case from the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal or abstract force. He is a person, and that distinction matters because you cannot be in an active and dynamic relationship with an abstract force, but you can be in a relationship with a person. And remember, we also went to great lengths to unpack this idea that the way that Jesus is with us, the way that he makes good on his promise to be with us always, even to the very end, is through the Holy Spirit, who in the scriptures is also called the Spirit of Jesus. So, since the Spirit is a relational person rather than an impersonal concept, it actually makes perfect sense that one of the ways we engage Jesus to steward intimacy and reinforce our connectedness with Jesus is through worship. When we think of hyper charismatic churches and traditions, we often think of the weird sounding stuff first, you know, like waving flags around and yelling out in tongues and the whole getting slain in the spirit thing, which if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Try to, try to keep that up as long as you can. But across all those mental images, some of them good, I would argue, some of them at least silly or maybe misguided, what usually also comes to mind is people really getting into worship so much so that we often make good-natured jokes about it. I've been around pastors who will see a room of people that are really getting into worship, and they'll be like, oh, shoot, Pentecostals, you know, like that. that. That well-known connection between the two things is no coincidence. And while you can certainly acknowledge certain abuses and poor practices in some hyper-charismatic traditions, I do think that it speaks volumes that when disciples of Jesus develop a deep concern for the Holy Spirit They are almost always also churches who are invested and uninhibited in their worship. Now, there are lots of different modes and methods of worship. The umbrella is actually really broad tonight. For the sake of time, I want to talk mostly about the idea of disciples disciples of Jesus coming together in a room to sing songs that ascribe value and praise to God. It's not the only way we worship, but it's one big way. Now, of course, I realize even that, getting together on Sunday and singing songs, is a thing that arrives at different people different ways. A small few of you, by personality and wiring or by your upbringing or something good that was taught to you, I don't know, you love worship. You see the value in it with no need of being convinced. Uh, You feel drawn to it naturally. You feel caught up in it naturally. Thank God for you few. Seriously, that's not me. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, singing from a hymnal with a piano, sometimes an organ if Miss Mary wasn't sick. And, uh, and Miss Teresa went like this, which is weird because she's not conducting anyone and it didn't work. Um, I care... I care very much about art and aesthetics. I'm very particular about those things uh, to, to a fault, really. So for better or for worse, it's not as easy for me to just drop into certain genres and styles of music or art and enjoy them without judgment and getting out of my own head. It's a fault of mine. I'm not saying this is a good thing. On top of that... Um, I don't like perceived contrivances, meaning I don't like when things feel, to me, manufactured or designed for corporate consumption. I have an extreme reaction to anything that I perceive to be at all phony. Again, a fault of mine. But in spite of all that, over the last few years in particular, um, I have become someone who genuinely loves worship. I love when we get together and sing. I don't just enjoy it. I find it crucial and necessary and life-giving, a fundamental aspect of my discipleship to Jesus. Now, I did not just arrive there by way of innate disposition. I have never in my life listened to a worship album just to enjoy it as a piece of music, unless I was involved in the creation of it, which is horrible. I know. Sorry. Uh, this is some, In other words, I'm saying this is something I had to learn. I'm not just naturally drawn to it. I wish, honest to God, I wish I was. I had to learn it. A lot of things I had to unlearn to get there. And really, it's a way of life that I had to put into practice. Now, in the past, though I never would have actually articulated it this way, I would have argued against it, I thought of worship as an optional and ornamental expression of my discipleship when and if... Both my preferences and disposition lined up in such a way that I felt like doing it. In other words, I was a consumer. I thought of worship by singing songs in church as this optional thing for me to enjoy when it was just right, just right. Not too much this, not too much that, just right. Right style, right aesthetic, right band, right vibe, matched with my mood, just right. And then sure, yeah, that I'll worship a bit. I'll enjoy it even. Because otherwise, if all those things aren't met, I would have to work at it. And what good is worship if you have to force it, I once argued. Now, I'm obviously mocking my past self, who's not here to defend himself. (laughs) But (laughs) he deserves to be mocked. And And it makes sense. Most of us are being indoctrinated by the world around us to be good consumers, to take what we like and to scroll past what we do not like with no investment and no cost to us whatsoever. Um, I just finished writing a book a while back that argues for the value in art that makes us upset and uncomfortable, and one of the many reasons that I spent an entire book arguing for that is because I believe that art, when it does what God designed it to do, asks something of the one beholding it. Art wants you to ask questions and to think and to feel, but not, I would argue, good things only. Also, I would argue unpleasant or painful or scary or upsetting things because the human experience is about much more than entertainment and feeling nice. And art can be, by God's design, a meaningful place to explore the full range of the human experience to better understand God, to better understand ourselves and the world in which we live. The point is that art asks for more than a passive and unaffected bystander, but mindless entertainment does not. That's all. That mindless entertainment needs is a passive bystander. And I had learned to treat worship like mindless entertainment. I like it when it's just right, but if it's not my style or if it doesn't hit me in the right mood, no, no thank you. Um, and the painful and sobering reality that I, that I had to face is that my reservations and reticence toward worship were, quite frankly, all selfish, all of them devoid of the Spirit. I don't prefer certain genres of music or whatever. I don't prefer certain environments and settings. I have misgivings about the people and the motivations around me or whatever it might be. It's all about me, my expectations, my felt needs, my preferences. And sadly, many of us approach church and community the exact same way. But when you approach anything in your discipleship to Jesus or in your place within God's family focused on what you get and what you prefer as a preferential consumer, you are in a very dangerous place. Even so, I really wouldn't go as far as to say that worship is in no sense about you. It does have something to do with you. Worship is an intimate relational exchange It is not a room full of drones that are just heaping praise on an unseen God to bolster his ego or something like that. But without a relational paradigm for worship, many of us become skeptical with the whole thing or cynical about the whole thing. The thing is, it's not hard to see why someone might become cynical or skeptical about this seemingly archaic notion of, Um, The idea that we schedule a specific time to get in a room and sing songs, some of which we don't even prefer stylistically, as an act of worship to an invisible God. And like it or not, skepticism and cynicism breed more skepticism and cynicism, and it's contagious in a room. You get in there, and I know this sounds silly, but you're like, oh, man, so-and-so over here doesn't get into worship. I will withhold my enthusiasm just in case there's something fishy going on here they know about and I don't know about yet. You do that subconsciously without even realizing it. Dallas Willard wrote about the way that modern culture cultivates this strange notion that the skeptical person is somehow always smarter than the person who believes. But that assumption is entirely arbitrary. It isn't based on anything other than skepticism itself. Think about it. Why is it that scores of young people in particular, but not just young people, when presented with a choice between, say, Entertaining the insight of a seasoned theologian with a PhD and decades of rigorous study and pastoral experience around the world, or some dork who's grumpy about God and has a podcast, so many choose option B, dork with a podcast, because option A is a believer and therefore suspicious and untrustworthy. Who cares how uninformed and inconsistent and sloppy and self-contradictory the skeptic is? They're the skeptic. They must be onto something. And don't get me wrong, there is certainly a time and a place to work through honest apprehension with God, the scriptures, with the community of God's people, the way we do things, to ask questions, all that. Hopefully you guys should know by now that we are all for honest wrestling and even doubt and questions, all that. But what I'm talking about is a popularized and contagious corporate skepticism based on a felt need to really, in the end, do what it is that you want to do. And I get it. That's my bent. I don't like being told what to do. I value individuality very, very highly, again, to a fault. But the hard truth that I've been wrestling through in my journey with Jesus is that though he cares deeply about me, something I've, have, it's taken me a long time to believe, and what makes me unique to him, I think he cares about that, he really doesn't value my individuality much at all. Does he care about me as an individual? Yes, absolutely. Of course, Jesus goes to great lengths to describe the unique and unsurpassable value God holds for every single person using all kinds of hyperbolic imagery. He knows how many hairs are on your head, all that kind of thing. But he isn't terribly concerned with creating a perfect little buffet out of life built on your personal preferences. In fact, quite the contrary, actually. Jesus' invitation to discipleship is come, deny yourself the things that you want, your preferences, your felt needs, deny those things on a regular and ongoing basis, and then come. You can be my apprentice. Just recently, uh, Abby, my wife, was telling me about a podcast she listens to. It's not uh, religious or spiritual at all. But out of nowhere, they offered an episode on Christianity. And she was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to be weird. Um, A subject they'd never broached before on this podcast. And the episode was called, I think, uh, she's not here to tell me if I'm getting it right or wrong. I think it was called Cafeteria Christianity. And she read me the episode description. And it was actually an encouragement to approach the way of Jesus like a buffet. There's some neat stuff in there. Take what you want and leave what you don't like. Which is beyond laughable. Uh, it's sort of like saying to someone, I don't know, like sort of like, oh man, this Dr. Martin Luther King guy has got some good things to say, but I don't prefer anything about civil rights personally. So I'm gonna leave those here and take the other bits that I like. You don't get to do that. It makes a mess of the whole thing. At least you can't do that without becoming a completely unlivable philosophical mess of contradictions. Satanism is honestly more consistent than that. Read the satanic Bible. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. My point is, the darkest joke ever made. My point is, we sometimes do that, the cafeteria Christianity thing, without even realizing it. At least I know I have. Um, I remember thinking at some point uh, during my whole wrestling with worship and my approach to it. And I remember thinking, God, I want to worship. And part of me did. I felt like I was missing out on something. I, and I, I was kind of bummed that I was missing something a lot of other people seemed to get. So I was like, man, I really want to worship. I do, but it's just so hard for me. <laughs> and I, this isn't my style. And I remember feeling as though, honestly, God replied by asking, so? <laughs> In his gentle and kind way, So? Imagine treating any meaningful relationship the same way. If I were to withhold intimacy and connection from my wife, unless, unless each and every avenue for connection were tailored to all my personal preferences, something like, oh, I'd love to go on a date night or sit down and catch up or talk or have intimacy or whatever, but it has to be exactly my style, or I don't think I can really get into it. For those of you that know anything about different types of personalities, which most of you do if you've read a book or not, just innately by knowing people, the way that we all receive love, whatever you want to call it, languages or personality types, whatever, um, it's all very different. So you know that in, or, in order to love a friend, someone in your community, in order to love a family member or a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it might be, you often have to go against your personal wiring so that they can feel loved and known and respected and all those things. So as I mentioned earlier, words of affirmation are one of my big things mean a lot to me. Abby likes them too, because she's a human. But gestures of kindness, like gestures mean more to her than words. I like gestures of kindness too, again, human but I don't care nearly as much about gestures as I do about words and about, like, physical touch. So what am I supposed to do? Tell Abby, like, oh, I get that that's how you feel, love, but that's not the way I like to give it. So uh, you're going to get the way I like or nothing at all. This isn't my style. You know, the thing is, when I go against my wiring to attempt to love Abby well the way that she receives love, I grow in selflessness. I end up feeling more love, more intimacy, and more connection as well. And there's more love and joy between her and myself, and our relationship thrives as a result. I'm sure you can see where I'm going with all this. Thing is, many, if not most of us, do want to encounter God and to experience intimacy with the Spirit But we also want, whether we realize it or not, to be entertained and to be catered to and to maintain a healthy hip skepticism in the process. And we do want good things for good reasons. We want good bands and good music and ideal environment. There's nothing at all wrong with those things. We actually care deeply about those things. We strive to make things excellent. There's something to be said about that. But we also want good things... For bad reasons, because we know how to be entertained, we know how to consume when our preferences are honored. We don't know how to engage in and reach for intimacy regardless of preferences or mood or cynicism. And because we have not cultivated a discipline of worship, we haven't trained ourselves to go against and beyond ourselves, and we wonder why our sense of intimacy with God seems to oscillate with our mood rather than against our mood. And a good band becomes a convenient cover-up for the fact that we don't know how to give our intimacy to God unless someone really, really helps us. But we know how to enjoy a good concert, so that's easy. and I worked uh, before this at a very big church with an awesome, you know, YouTube band every night and all that, I honestly can't tell you how often I heard something like, well, I have a home church, I go there in the morning, but at night I come here because the band is awesome or whatever, something like that. Don't get me wrong, a great band and a great mix or nothing to sneeze at. They are awesome. But what these people were saying is that I like to worship when it suits my taste. Um, A.W. Tozer once wrote this, the church that can't worship must be entertained and leaders who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment mark sayers said something similar more recently he argued that when we approach church as consumers worship service becomes pseudo media event church building becomes theme park, Christian leader becomes Christian celebrity, teaching becomes entertainment, salvation becomes self-help, discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement, soul becomes self, denomination becomes brand, and gospel becomes slogans. Now, entertainment, to be sure, is not intimacy, Now, this is actually about much more than intimacy, though that would be enough. But if you remember back to earlier in the series, we argued from the Scriptures that intimacy is the beginning of how we operate in the empowerment of God's Spirit in the first place. I actually said it like this. Intimacy with God plus holiness, meaning being different, set apart, living according to the teachings of Jesus, plus faith, a willingness to step out, believing good things about God, equals the power to operate in the things of the Spirit. And of course, conversely, no intimacy, no holiness, no faith, no power in the Holy Spirit, meaning ground zero, the starting point for becoming the type of person able to hear God's voice. And to prophesy over your community or your kids, your family, your friends, or to pray miraculous healing over the sick or deliverance from evil spirits, whatever it be, the starting point is the simple and obvious point of intimacy with God. And again, there are many methods of stewarding that intimacy. I would argue that a daily time of prayer, practicing the presence of God is chief among them. There are entire spiritual disciplines dedicated to the work of being with Jesus. We've worked through several in teaching series and practices in your communities, silence and solitude, prayer, sabbath, fasting, and I would argue worship. Worship is a special, a unique and beautiful way, a gift long awaited by the people of God, as I'll argue in just a minute, that we have at our immediate disposal and in our midst every single week on Sunday evening during our time of communion. But we often miss it or we willfully neglect it In my own journey with all of this, I was very much that reticent, preferential person looking for an out. I don't prefer, personally, I once argued, to wave my hands around and sing really loud. And what difference does it make if I do or don't, you know, that kind of thing. And really, the funny thing is, I was thinking back as I wrote this and trying to figure out what started to shift in me. And it took someone agreeing with me (laughs) to see the problems in my logic, you know. Um, I remember talking this through with a like-minded person, and we're sitting there reinforcing one another's opinions and patting each other on the back and all that. And they said, and really, like, we're going further and further with it. And they said, really, why even sing it all? And I kind of paused and said, well, I mean, you know, we, we sing because God designed most of us with working vocal cords, you know, like a, that's a thing, it's all in the Bible. And they were like, yeah, well, sure, but God knows what we're thinking. Why do we even have to sing? And I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I often know what someone is thinking and I still prefer it vocalized. Jesus said that God knows what we need before we ask and we're still supposed to ask for it. And they said, okay, fine, but why the hand-raising and the dancing all around and everything? And I thought there in the moment that this was suddenly the silliest question of them all. I said, well, most humans, even infants, respond to music with their bodies. Something in the way that we're built. If I think back to some of the best, most impacting live performances that I've witnessed, um, I didn't stand there and stoically think through all of them. I engaged or I sang and danced, the whole thing. And I knew all this. Talking to this other person, I knew all this. We say this all the time at Van City. We are more than just souls or minds that inhabit bodies. We are created by God as bodies and souls, as hearts and minds. All of it is you and all of it is interconnected. So we pray with the mind and the body through things like praying out loud with a group of people or reading liturgies or fasting as a way to pray with the body or singing songs at church. And I knew that All through the scriptures, God constantly uses physical symbols and gestures that he designs and commands and utilizes all sorts of ways to worship and to uphold community. Almost all of them are outward and physical and really symbolic. When you read the grand gestures of praise in the Bible, each of them are either primarily physical or they are accompanied by an outward component, worship in the scriptures, involves not just singing or thinking things, but dancing and lifting hands or kneeling or even bowing or laying down on the ground. Worship for one woman in Luke's gospel was to pour perfume on Jesus' feet and wash them with her tears. And I realized, man, I really don't have any good reasons for my theology other than my personal preferences. And worship which is stewarding intimacy and connection with God's Spirit is not about my preferences, not even a little bit, and quite frankly, it's not even just about me. It's about the rest of you. Believe me, I've been—I've uh, not been working in churches for a really long time, but I've been working long enough to have heard dozens of stories from individuals that sound something like this: I showed up to church, I was worn out and sad and empty, discouraged, whatever. But then I looked over and I saw so-and-so in front of me and their arms were up in worship with wild abandon. I was so encouraged and emboldened by what I saw that I was led by them into the presence of God and they didn't even know it. I'm sure that that's happened to some of you as well. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's your job to put on a show so that someone else can get into it. It just means that when we make the deliberate, disciplined effort to engage in this unique time and space, even when we don't innately feel like doing it, to cultivate intimacy and connection with God with our minds and our voices and our bodies, it can lift up the entire family of God. And that's part of what it means to come here and contribute, not just to take why do you think I, I sit so close to Lexi on Sunday night? I'm trying to get some of that spirit coming my way, you guys. I'm trying to sap some of that up. Tab was telling me uh, that there have been times when he's been up here leading worship, he's finished, stepped off stage, and gone to an individual and thanked them for leading him in worship. A worship leader, a friend of mine, a musician, Dana Dooley, argues this way. She says, sometimes I sing for the person next to me. They need to hear about God's faithfulness, about his goodness and his grace. And I sing a little bit louder so that they know it in the depths of their soul. And sometimes I need you to sing for me. I need to be reminded that he is here and he is not silent. I need to be reminded that he is faithful and he is good. And remember, this is a specific, disciplined effort for most of us not just some of us, for most of us, I think, you are working to push back the indoctrination of consumer culture and mindless entertainment and cynicism. And we're going to engage in that effort by standing stoically and mumbling. That's how we fight back against those huge things, just reading slides out loud. I mentioned that story in Luke 7 in which a woman who had spent much of her life getting things wrong comes to Jesus. She pours perfume on his feet. And in that story, the entire scene unfolds in the presence of this stoic, refined religious leader who does no such embarrassing thing. He's well-behaved, well-mannered. And notice this fascinating thing that Jesus says in that story. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, this is the man who's standing by watching the whole thing, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Notice that. His feet are dirty at this point. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiving as her great love has shown. Not because she stood there and thought things but in accordance with the outward and physical demonstration of her love, as her great love has shown. I love that. Obviously, this isn't a passage about singing songs in church, but the parallels are obvious. Imagine if this profound act of worship were somehow impeded by this woman's preferences or her inability to rise above her disposition, disposition. Pouring out expensive perfume was a costly thing, obviously, to do. Something done at not only the woman's financial expense, but at the expense of her already frail dignity. That she would sit weeping on and kissing Jesus' dirty feet, which he specifically points out have not been washed, was certainly an undignified thing to do. I get that Jesus wants intimacy and worship, but that's not my style. Now, I know our church... I know this hits a lot of us uh, in different ways. Some of us, it's a tough pill to swallow for all kinds of reasons, valid and probably less so. But believe me when I say that none of this is intended to make anyone feel bad or less than. That's why I told you guys my story and how long it's taken me. This is an invitation. I feel comfortable and qualified to say as much because I spent a very long time deliberately resigned to my reticence in worship and I've come to a very different place. So I know both things really well, and I can tell you that if you have yet to step out into a disciplined and engaged approach to worship with your mind and your voice and your body, you are missing out. There is a special kind of intimacy and connectedness available to you by God's Spirit that you are, quite frankly, missing And that doesn't mean that unless everyone is going bananas all the time that they aren't close to God. Not at all, nothing like that. Everyone's full engagement will still look very different, and that's totally fine and good even. But if you have yet to wade deep into the undignified waters of fearless worship, you are missing out. And I can tell you from experience. See, it's easy and understandable to overlook the sheer magnitude Of our unique circumstances because we're so far removed from the context. But look at it this way worship has always been, in the story of the Bible, deeply important to God's people. And for centuries after the fall, the only way to do it was to enact certain rituals or to go to a certain place. And even then, there was restricted access. Because of sin, there was a time when God's people lost even that, even the restricted access to his presence. And for centuries, the people of God longed for a place to just be with God, to have his presence come back and to be able to worship, it, worship him and enjoy his presence. And there was nothing, no way to hear God's voice, no place to worship him until God was the one who did something about it. Now, God's spirit is not on a mountain, not localized in a temple, but it is in you And the sacred place for worship is your very body, your hands, your feet, your vocal cords, your mind. You are the temple, and not just you in the individual sense. You, plural, God's people, the church, we are now that temple, the place of worship for God's people. We, as disciples of Jesus, can hear God's voice anytime we'd like to listen to him. We can meet with Him in a meaningful and personal way, and this has not always been the case. In fact, most of the time, it was not the case. And knowing all that, isn't it at least worth trying to come against the indoctrination of our culture, against personal preferences, against our dispositions and moods, to make a disciplined effort to acknowledge and honor and celebrate what God has done in order for us to be able to enjoy Him? and to cultivate closeness with him in the process. Isn't it worth showing up on a Sunday evening expecting something to happen? There's this interesting line in 1 Corinthians, which is the same letter that we've read a lot throughout the series, where Paul unpacks all the things that the Spirit does, and he's leading one church into what it means to know and operate the Spirit. And in chapter 14, he writes this, "'What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? "'When you come together for church like this,' Each of you has a hymn, or a word of instruction, or a revelation, or a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church, everyone, may be built up. Now, look how Paul's operating assumption is a complete inversion of how church is often done today. In Paul's mind, no one is coming to church to take anything All of them are showing up to give something for the sake of building up the whole church, to engage in the whole thing. Paul's paradigm is of a family that can simply take for granted that men and women are showing up to church in eager expectation not to consume, but to give, not to take, but to share. And this has absolutely nothing to do with hype. I don't think we could do hype if we wanted to. Um, Forget (laughs) hype, you know? This is about expectation, the deeply held theological conviction that God, by His Spirit, is with us, whether we feel like it or not, and He is going to say and do things, and we get to engage Him in worship. Of course, you can show up and spend time with a friend or go out with your kids or go on a date night with a spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend and just go through the motions and take them for granted and get little to nothing from it and give little to nothing to it. But wouldn't you rather remember that those times are precious and meaningful and overflowing with potential for intimacy and connection and hearing something you need to hear or saying something you need to say and being with someone you love in a meaningful, engaged sense. The church gathering is certainly not in any sense the only venue that we have for intimacy with God. Singing is not the only kind of worship, but this time is special, and this kind of worship is uniquely important. It has been for disciples of Jesus all over the world for centuries. For most of us, This is and should be the only time in a week that we have to come together, at least normally, and stand together in worship and sing with a family of believers surrounded by brothers and sisters, not just to go through the motions, but to push back against cynicism and distraction and say, No, we are still here. We're still doing this. And if you don't believe us, watch us. We will stand up and we will sing and we will meet God. We will take communion, all that. This is a unique and crucial time for disciples of Jesus. Or, where we stand back and shrug and say, I don't like this song, or I don't really feel like it tonight, or I didn't even show up. I was tired, I went to a ball game, or it was sunny, or I wanted to go on a hike, or I'll catch you next time. This is not a social event. There's a social aspect to it, but it's not an event. Sometimes I have people tell me, well, you know, I miss church a lot, but, you know, I always listen to the podcast, as if the essence of the evening were the teaching. It's not. The essence of the evening is communion, intimacy with God, and with one another, and hear this coming from the guy whose job it is to write these teachings, you don't get the essence of church from a podcast you get one element of it, and even that element is designed to exist in the context of the other things that happen in the gathering. And believe me, I've done it too, so I know I'm guilty of it just like some of you are, When we stand back and nitpick it as if it is a consumer product for us to enjoy, and we say things like, I didn't like those songs this week, or I don't like this series, or I only like the Bible teachings and not the topic teachings or whatever, and vice versa, and you complain in your communities, and it always comes back to me somehow, even though I really wish it wouldn't. Um, (laughs) You know, I like it this way and not that whatever. Remember what this is. I have to remind myself often, for me, I have to say, like, this is not my job. I mean, it is, but this is not primarily a job. This is not an optional event. This is not just something I'm obligated to be at. This is a realization of something awaited by God's people for centuries and available to us now by the great generosity of God himself. And I'm not saying that preferences or moods don't matter at all, but I am asking should we let those things keep us from the intimate presence of God in worship and the building up of the family of God's people in the months and years ahead i really don't care very much probably to a fault if we get like hundreds of people or if we get a massive budget or if we get a cool reputation in the city or more podcast subscribers or whatever and yes we want to grow yes we want to become financially stable that'd be nice and we're and we're and thanks to you guys we're on track sure it would be neat if people listened to the podcast all that stuff is fine But what I've honestly been hoping and praying is that our family will grow and continue to grow in the seriousness and the great dedication with which we approach Jesus and his church. Jesus loves the church so much, he called it his bride. It's like his wife. Don't get me wrong, I love that we have fun. I have no intention of making things miserable and stoic all the time. We're doing a chili cook-off for pizza. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I want us to come in expectation, and be here for each other, ready for something to happen, whether we feel like it is or not. It takes a disciplined effort to make that happen, showing up against all odds in spite of whatever comes our way, not to consume, not to take, but in eager expectation of a God who shows up by His Spirit, giving ourselves over in eager adoration to worship, to be with Him, and to bring one another along on that journey because we need one another on that journey. When those tired among us feel unable to stand, may we, by our worship and expectation and readiness, help lift them up and lift the church up in the process. Spirit, fill us that it may be so. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come before we worship together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vancity financially at vancitychurch/give.